We thank you for the simplicity of the words we just sang together because it is in those words that we find our ultimate hope. As you gather us now to hear your word, Father, give us ears to hear and eyes to see what your word is saying to us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Well, I, I got to say, folks, um, uh, I, I, this is my ninth time preaching in the last uh, eight days. Uh, I was down at Ocean Grove for the last week sharing the Word of God with the crowd down there. And so, uh, you know, I'm not really sure what I'm going to preach to you about today. I'm just sort of up here, you know, confused, dazed and lost, but I have a feeling somehow or another it will get to Jesus. That's, that's my prediction anyway. Uh, so with that being said, let's open up our Bibles to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verses 12 through 26. And as you who will remain do that, those children that are ready for their Sprouts lesson can exit and meet their teacher at the back door there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 26. The Apostle Paul writes, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. End of reading. Well, as you might remember, last week we began a new series in which we were looking at the five stages of Jesus' exaltation. And we began uh, last week noting that Jesus' exaltation begins with him storming the gates of hell, coming into the realm of the dead where Satan and his minions rule and declaring that he has won the victory over them by his atoning death and by his eventual resurrection, which we are going to be spending time looking at today. In February of 2007, 
the well-known film director James Cameron, director of such classics as Terminator and Titanic and Avatar and other films, gathered at the back of the New York Public Library with all sorts of cameras and all sorts of media to make a statement that at the time well, shook the world a little bit. No, he did not announce that he would be making Terminator Part 6 or Titanic 2 or Avatar 2, 3, 4, and 5. Rather, Cameron stood in front of the cameras with an archaeologist and some other scholars to proclaim that they believed they had found the remains of the body of Jesus. In a tomb outside Jerusalem, archaeologists did indeed find and were researching the remains of a body. And so arrangements were made for Cameron to produce a documentary of the findings. The Discovery Channel breathlessly promoted the premiere of their world-altering film. Harper San Francisco would publish a book with the title, The Lost Tomb of Christ. And questions abounded. Could this really be it? Was Christianity done for? Well, we're here. Not quite. The night came for the big documentary to show, and well, it didn't, frankly, it didn't go so hot for Cameron or any of the people involved in the project, though the, the show did have big ratings for Discovery, and I'm sure made everyone lots of dough. Uh, it wasn't long before even the most secular of scholars were crying foul on the whole thing. It turned out that this quote-unquote new Discovery had actually been found 27 years earlier in 1980. As a matter of fact, the BBC had already done a documentary on the very same tomb in 1996, a full 11 years earlier than Cameron. And by the time Cameron rolled out his documentary, it turned out that the vast majority of archaeological scholars not only dismissed this find as being credible, but in fact laughed it out of the room. Numerous scholars that had been quoted in the documentary as agreeing with the supposed findings, well, out of embarrassment, ended up recanting what they had said. In the end, William Dever, an archaeologist, said it well when he said that Cameron's team's, quote, conclusions were already drawn at the beginning of the inquiry and that their argument goes far beyond any reasonable interpretation, end quote. And just in case you're wondering... William Dever, the archaeologist, was not a Christian saying that. He's just an honest archaeologist. Nevertheless, this story does bring up an interesting proposition for us to consider today, which is, what if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? We wouldn't be the first people to ever ask the question. We won't be the last. In the church at Corinth, there were apparently members of that congregation that were indeed denying that the resurrection took place or that there would be a resurrection that would take place. And our text this morning that I just read is 
quite literally, literally a response to that proposition. So then, what if? What if there was no resurrection? Paul says it this way, if Christ has not been raised, number one, then our faith is in vain. Look at verse 14 again with me. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. The Apostle Paul begins by pointing out two immediate results that come if Jesus is not alive. Number one, the message that I preach to you is nonsense and you ought not listen. Number two, your faith is also nonsense. In other words, Paul says, if Jesus isn't raised, this whole thing, this whole Christian thing is a 2,000-year waste of time. Now, that might seem obvious to most of us in here. After all, even in today's churches that deny some of the historic doctrines of the faith, and there are many out there, the vast majority of those still do affirm a literal bodily resurrection of Jesus being absolutely central to Christianity. Nevertheless, there are many today, and that number is growing, that would like to preach a Jesus who didn't really rise from the dead, or at least a Jesus that's less weird, less supernaturally. There are those that seek to preach a Jesus who, yes, may have been a great teacher, or maybe even more popular, a political revolutionary. That's a big one that you hear about. That Jesus was just a man who knew how to upset the man. But do we really have to preach a Jesus who's the Son of God? In response to that, the Apostle Paul says in our text, here's the deal, if Jesus was all those things, if he was a great teacher and he was a political revolutionary and he was even a great healer and, you know, did all sorts of great things, if he didn't raise from the dead, I'm sorry, he's still not worth really believing in. One of my mentors, Tim Keller, put it this way, he says, quote, sometimes people approach me and say, I really struggle with this aspect or that aspect of Christian teaching. I like this part, but I don't like that part. And Keller says, I usually respond, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? That's the issue on which everything hinges. Or to put it another way that Yaroslav Pelikan, the great scholar, put it, if Jesus rose from the dead, then nothing else matters. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then nothing else matters. So that's the first thing Paul wants to make clear. If Jesus isn't risen, all this is, let's go home. All this decor that we're excited about for VBS tomorrow in which we're going to be proclaiming a risen Savior who promises eternal life to the kids who will gather here. Come on, let's, let's tear it all down. 
But that's not all. Paul goes on. He says, if, listen, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, well, well, then we're even in more trouble because it turns out we're misrepresenting God. That's what he says in verse 15. We're misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ when in fact he didn't. As if it wasn't bad enough to find out that Christian faith is declared worthless, Paul says, actually, it's worse than that. It means y'all are in trouble. I think about what I tell people when they ask me what God's like. And my answer always is, look at Jesus. Pick up a Bible, read one of the Gospels, and you'll see what God is like. That's your answer. But again, if Christ isn't risen, yeah, turns out I'm dead wrong. Go somewhere else. And if it's the case that our faith is in vain and we're misrepresenting God, well then, that means, dun, 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 we're all damned. That's really what Paul's getting at here. He says, if Christ isn't raised, then that means all those who have died already, well, they've perished. Verses 17 and 18 tell us that. In other words, you can't be forgiven because no one's won that forgiveness for you. It means that whatever you've done in your life will be held against you as you stand before the judgment seat of God Almighty. It means that every sin in thought, word, and deed, every mistake will be paid for not by Jesus, but by you. Paul says, we all perish. The word there for perished in Greek is literally apollyon, which means destroyed. R.C.H. Linsky, a Bible commentator and scholar, captures the dour pronouncement here well when he says, he who persists in this denial of the resurrection, writes over every believer's tomb, lost. Or what amounts to the same, damned. Nothing more heartrending could be said. The entire hereafter is shrouded in the blackest night. Ugh. In this case, then, the Apostle Paul says, all right, so if this is the reality, then there's only really one way to live. You might as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. You see, what the, the apostles' great alternative to Christian faith is utter hedonism. If it's not true, hey, find as much pleasure in the here and now as you possibly can. Because life's short. YOLO, to use a phrase a few years ago. It really does make good sense. Go after the pleasure if there's no Christ alive today. I got to tell you, one of the things that I respect about some atheists and uh, people who reject the resurrection of Jesus is that they're honest enough to acknowledge that reality. They're honest enough to see the consequences of believing in a universe that doesn't have life after death. And in fact, they come out and say, like, hey, listen, 
Life's just about a series of illusions in which you're able to have momentary instance of pleasure. Woody Allen's famous for this. He's written op-eds about this. On the one hand, he'll say, life is just a painful, nightmarish, meaningless experience. And so, you know, I try to find little things that distract me from that painful reality, and it makes me get by. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, the Bible's case is the same as the atheist's. Life is one long autumn leading into a permanent winter. So the apostle concludes his argument saying, if we have, Christ, if we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Well, now you're thinking, why on earth did I get up and come to church for this? What a downer of a sermon. But I had to get through that so that I can get to what I have to say next, or better, what the inspired Apostle Paul has to say next, which is, in fact, Christ has been raised. With utter certainty, utter confidence that could only be from a man who had, in fact, encountered the risen Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul says, in fact, indisputable, not merely a matter of blind faith, but actual historical fact, Christ has been raised. Now you may say, well, wait, 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 Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written at least 30, 40, sometimes longer after the events, sometimes 30, 40, 50, 60 years after the events took place, they probably just made it up to back up their story. To which the apostle might respond, that's far too soon for people to get away with a legend. Far too soon. I mean, consider this. It's been decades since President Kennedy was shot and killed. If someone were to write in public documents today, guess what? It turns out that Kennedy is really alive, living in the mountains of Montana. Yes, I realize there's somebody out there in the world that actually believes that. I know. But what do the vast majority say based on the historical data we have? That's crazy. We know he died. We know the story. We've seen the evidence for his death, and we have no good reason to believe that he's living in the hills or mountains of Montana. In the same way, the gospel writers were writing far too early to get away with making this stuff up. They would have been called out on their supposed facts if this body of Jesus could be delivered. And for what it's worth, the gospels aren't even the oldest manuscripts that speak of the resurrection. In fact, the letter we're quoting from today was written maybe 15 to 20 years after Jesus' resurrection, way too early for legendary stuff to be creeping in. It is in this very public document that Paul makes the astonishing claim, if Jesus didn't rise, that over 500 people had seen him risen in the flesh. Pretty risky business if this is all just some sort of myth they're peddling. 
Well, then some may say, well, okay, the disciples just thought they saw him because they wanted him to be alive so bad. It was wish fulfillment. It was maybe a mass hallucination. They found some amazing drugs. To which we respond, this is the utter definition of chronological snobbery. To use a term C.S. Lewis coined, it means we modern people tend to think that we are much more intelligent and much more sophisticated than the people way back then. We think that people in first century Palestine in the Roman world would have easily been fooled into believing that someone could rise from the dead. But of course, the facts couldn't be more different. In Greco-Roman thinking, which was the vast majority of the known world at the time, the body was seen as evil. Flesh was seen as inherently bad matter, and anything associated with it was dirty, unclean, unholy, and to be avoided. Heaven, in their view, was the place where finally the soul was separated from the filthy body. They never would have naturally believed that the soul and the body would rise together in one man. That is, unless they were given compelling evidence they couldn't deny. Or in Jewish thinking, the body was seen as good, that's true, but there was no concept of a single Messiah raising from the dead. This is why you see throughout Jesus' life, his disciples don't understand it when he talks about it, and when he confronts other people about his ability to rise others from the dead, people like Martha at the tomb of her brother Lazarus she says, yes, yes, I know there will be a general resurrection at the end of time where everybody will rise up to meet God. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I am the resurrection and the life. And she still is like, okay, whatever you say, I don't understand. The point is it wasn't a category for either the Greco-Roman world or the Jewish thinking world. Contrary to what we think about the old world, they wouldn't have had some mass hallucination because they didn't, have, they didn't have the way of thinking that we assume they did. You might say, well, the disciples just wanted to make a name for themselves. Man, really terrible way to do it. I mean, it ended up with almost all of them being executed in horrible ways. It didn't really make a whole lot of sense if they were just looking for fame or, man, they made a really bad calculation. And so this is why there are people that even if they end up rejecting Jesus as their Lord, can hear the data, can hear the presentation, and come to accept that he really rose in the body. People like Pincus Lapide, an Orthodox Jewish scholar who would have no incentive to suggest that it was actually true, nevertheless, based on his research, said it was true, believed it was true, that it wasn't a mere invention of the community of disciples. And so why is that such good news why is it such good news that Jesus actually did rise from the dead? Well, 
because that means it essentially reverses all the bad stuff I mentioned at the beginning of this message. Since Jesus defeated death, that means life indeed isn't meaningless. It means that in fact every part of your life is bursting with meaning. If it is true that Jesus rose from the dead, then that means the God and Father of Jesus must have a grand overarching plan for this creation of His. Indeed, He says so all throughout the Scriptures. Good news for you, folks. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, you are not random space dust. You are not a cosmic accident. You are not just another mammal waiting to become worm food. No. Your life has eternal significance. As Morton Kelsey, the famous writer, said, if we are indeed part and parcel of a meaningless universe, the kind in which Jesus could be murdered on a cross with no resurrection, then being depressed only makes good sense. Under these conditions, the sensitive and sensible person will be depressed. He goes on, I have discovered only one event in history that redeemed all this evil from me and gave me hope, the resurrection of Jesus. And that means because Jesus has risen, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, our Lord, was delivered up for your trespasses and raised for your justification. This means that because Jesus has risen, you are declared righteous in the sight of God no matter what you have done, no matter what you have thought or no matter what you have said. And it also means, as Paul concludes his passage, noting that the devil is defeated. It means that ultimately your home is heaven. I know many people that are suffering with various conditions, whether they be mental or physical. Many more of you are struggling in ways that, that I, I don't know. You carry with you a, an anguish, an ache, or a guilt, or a burden that you can't seem to be free of. I talked to someone yesterday after my sermon at Ocean Grove who came up to me in tears and said, I feel like I carry around with me every single day, based on what I've done, a gigantic bag of rocks, and every single one of those rocks represents shame. Every one of us feels like we're carrying a cross from time to time. Can I just remind you again that what ultimately matters, what ultimately the resurrection of Jesus means for you, is that whatever burden you're carrying, whatever shame 
you can't seem to let go of, whatever struggles you have and whatever sickness you encounter. And I just remind you that the resurrection of Jesus is a down payment guaranteeing, guaranteeing that all of that will be gone, vanquished. As Tanya read in our passage from Isaiah, there will be one day where we are at home in a place where the wolf and the lamb will graze together, where there will be no more suffering and shame and guilt, where it will all be made new. This is why we insist on glorying in the resurrection of Jesus, because it is our only hope in the face of a world that is filled with pain. And how do you receive this resurrection? Well, the natural part of us would think, well, I, I, <laughs> I better clean up my act. I better do this. I better do that. I better do, you know, there, there's our natural default is to say, okay, what do I have to do to get this resurrection for myself? What do I have to achieve in order to make it to resurrection level status? What stairway do I have to climb to get to heaven, oh, Robert Plant and Jimmy Page? And the answer of Jesus is, you don't climb anything. I climb down to you, and you simply say, thank you. I'll take it, and you've got it. I'll take a resurrected Jesus, and he says, I'm yours forever. That's it. It really is. That's it. And so, as people that believe in the resurrection... We can confess with the great Russian writer Fyodor Dostoevsky, quote, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to even somehow justify all that has happened. Yes, that is the hope we hold on to because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the victor over death. Father, I pray that you would cause us to cling to the hope that is won for us by Jesus. When the doubts and the questions surface, when the hardships come, cast our eyes on what is coming. 
and let us find our rest and contentment in your presence with us now. And so to that end, Father, we pray the prayer that our Savior gave us with one voice saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.